1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey Peter, I know we're going through an apocalypse, and so if we're going to start the show off right, let's play the scariest fucking song on this record. The song is called In Dark Trees. It's by Brian Eno off his 1975 album, Another Green World. And it's also number 429 out of 500 on The 500 with me, Josh Adam Myers. What is up, you kadoogles? I-, I hope you guys are all doing okay, you know, We're worried here, just like you are. We're going to be fine. We just got to bunker down and isolate for a little bit. We're going to do everything in our power to keep the podcast going. We got a few episodes in the stacks. And we're going to figure out some either. I'm going to go to the person's house and we're going to do it because I'm good and make sure they're good. Or we're going to fucking have to do it remotely. But every week you will get an episode. I have to do this because I don't have any work anymore. It's all gone. Just like much of of all the listeners, man. So, you know, we're going to help each other out. We're going to get through this. I love you guys. So thank you for tuning in and joining me in my journey. Down Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. I do want to say something to all the little cadoogly-spooglies out there. You guys and me, we are a family. And I want to give a shout-out to Candace and Mike our nun, and their entire family who went through a 10-month-long stay in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York for their 14-year-old William who sadly passed away on February 3rd, surrounded by all the family and loved ones. From this tragedy, she and her husband created the Free Willy Project in their son's name in efforts to help other parents and their children fighting for their lives in the PICU. Now, we support the Fleece Army collectively, and they are hoping to provide for children and their parents in these situations. So I want you guys to go to the website, freewillyproject.com for more details. Help these people out. Yo, they are cadugly spoogly doogles. You know what? They're true doogs. That's the shit I wanted to start calling y'all. True the people that fuck with this podcast, and these two wonderful people, Candace and Mike, have been through a tragedy, and they're trying to do something beautiful out of it. So we will put the link on the website, the500podcast.com, and just help out if you can. I know it's, it's tough for everybody, but just do your best, and, uh, and we'll do ours. You do yours, I'll do mine. We'll make it through. Nothing's gonna stop me now, but <laughs> I'm I bet you're wondering, like, is this the second Brian Eno record in three weeks? Yeah, because we just did Here Come the Warm Jets. But let's find out about this one, because it's a different one. Much more. Cadoubly. Released on Island Records in September of 1975, this is the third studio album by British ambient music pioneer Brian Eno, who co-produced alongside Rhett Davies. Eno was always fascinated and influenced by unconventional avant-garde and experimental composers like John Cage. This is going to be a tough one for me to say. Carl Heinz Stockhausen. I got through it. And Steve Reich. And Another Green World saw a deliberate departure from his previous sound into the minimalist ambient music he would release through much of the 70s. I can't agree with that statement more. This Dude, Another Green World and Here Come the Warm Jets, completely different records. Eno played everything on half the album and enlisted a small crew of musicians for the remainder. Even though this record now sounds cohesive, delicate, and at times even meditative, it was created in somewhat of a panic. Unlike previous albums, Eno entered the studio without much written and it took three frustrating, fruitless, and expensive weeks before he and the musicians creatively coalesced. Or as I like to call it, contigued. While the album utilized many sonically experimental and unique studio techniques, one of the most notable was from a deck of cards Eno wrote with his art school friend, painter Peter Schmidt. This is actually really fucking cool, guys. You're gonna dig this. Titled Oblique Strategies, there were about a hundred cards that had unique and often perplexing instructions to spark creativity. When Eno and his musicians found themselves at a dead end, they would pull out a card at random that would dictate their next move. Eno and Schmidt considered them worthwhile dilemmas and released the first official set of them to the public in 1974. Eno would go on to use these on nearly all future recordings. They became so popular and respected that he used them on artists he was working with like Phoenix, Coldplay. REM on David Bowie's three Berlin albums on which Eno collaborated. Although Another Green World didn't chart in the UK or America, its importance and influence landed it on the 500. Today we will be exploring it with the musicians whose career started through Eno, producer of their first record. My guest today is the one and only Gerald Casali, one of the founders of of the revolutionary and influential band from Akron, Ohio, Devo. You know Gerald, this is the fucking man. There's no Devo without this dude. He's also an award-winning music video and commercial director. He's an incredibly talented winemaker and you can find his Pinot Noir and Rosé varieties at the 50by50.com, 50 50 all spelled out. Guys, Sometimes we get a great guest for a record and sometimes we get the fucking manugle. and we hit the nail on the head, went to his house to record. It was awesome. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on Spotify or anywhere you get your pods. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. Also, we want to start something new. You might be using Spotify and not even knowing it because it's how you play music on Instagram stories. You can post your favorite moment, 15 seconds or less, or whatever the fuck song that captures your favorite moment from the album. You can see the lyrics and everything, so whatever moves you will move me. Play that moment on your stories and tag at the 500 podcast and me at Josh Adam Myers on Instagram. We're all going to be self-quarantining. I love saying that. Quarantine. Whoever said the white girl that was like, quarantine me? That's fucking dope. That's just a cute word. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go. With number 429 out of 500. With Another Green World by Brian Ennell. I'm I am running sitting running with Gerald die, Gasali. Wow. Whoa, whoa. You're ready for Broadway. I've been sitting with Gerald Gasali. <laughs> uh, 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 Dude, this is <laughs> such a pleasure uh to be sitting and talking to you as the world ends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's not even funny is it no it's uh, not it,
1: i have to laugh i i because because we were supposed to record this last week and then it just kind of fell apart but this i to be honest with you i would i'm so much happier to be here at your place because yours is way fucking cooler than mine did.
0: well my <laughs> wife is a uh, uh her her mother is rather is a infectious disease rn nurse really and she's up on all this she's you know She's a senior citizen, and she's lived through SARS and uh, you know N one H one N one. Yeah, and so she was on this a couple months before.
1: Oh, she was. She was like, she's like the hipster coronavirus. She's like, oh, I, I, I still call it COVID nineteen. Well, like,
0: yeah, it's this like, corona like, bullshit. Hey, something's about to happen, and this yeah. is going to be serious. And you know, the U.S. isn't taking it seriously. Exactly. But let's but let's on, on a lighter note.
1: Yeah, I am such a huge fan uh, of you and your music and the the art that you've created over the years, and I couldn't think of a better guest to talk about this record because this is our second Brian Eno record within, I think three weeks it's been three weeks since we did uh here come the warm jets and now we're in some more advanced stuff so 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 tell me about your first experience with brian eno
0: well i i I couldn't um, elevate it to my first experience with him but of him was of course in roxy music yeah and uh and living in akron ohio we were you know 25 miles from cleveland ohio which turns out to be like epicenter of rock and roll people think of cleveland as some you know podunk midwestern town but if you look at the history of rock and roll um it is a tastemaker and a hit maker of make or break acts and of course there was the famous dj who got snapped for Paola and then went down in in um in flames what's his name he was The the top guy, Alan Freed. Yes, I heard about him, yeah. And so for years, no major act from the United States or the UK or anywhere, frankly, that came to America did not play Cleveland. They had to play Cleveland. So I saw growing up, because I was in the sweet spot of American culture, right? I saw James Brown. I saw uh, Jimi Hendrix. I saw uh, David Bowie. I saw Roxy Music and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. And Bob Marley and on and on. Uh, uh, Slade, one of the most amazing concerts I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Uh, other than Diamond Dogs, which just blew me away. Sure. So when I saw Roxy Music and there was Brian Eno, Putting the experimental parts into those pop songs, right? Which were quite amazing pop songs because they were tapestries and they were almost symphonic. Especially when they get around to songs like Out of the Blue. And uh, and and there he is like with spandex pants, no shirt, feather boa. Yeah, he's got know, like
1: multiple kimono glitter. changes during, yeah, 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 this, during yeah, yeah. the
0: act. And he's using his synths to create basically you know, drones and noise soundscapes over the top of these big groups. And it was like, this is fucking great. Because certainly Mark and I came from the art world and we were artists, visual artists who were also making music. But we appreciated artists who used music as a medium. So that's what we were interested in. We were interested in experimentation and soundscapes and we loved anything that was innovative so yes we had Bowie Damage we loved Roxy Music you know we were listening also to like you know John Cage and Terry Riley and and Morton Subotnick and all these things that were going on at the time I mean people don't even understand that the true 70s was one of the last times of complete explosion of individual creativity and diversity like there was just no value judgment on it anybody interested in anything could find something yeah and so you know we loved Roxy Music and we didn't of course you're an outsider you don't know anything about the politics and that Brian's unhappy because you know Brian Ferry wants to be straight laced and Brian Eno wants wants to to go go further out Yeah, exactly so you adjust to that and of course when here Come the Warm Jets came out. Incredible record. Well, yeah. Incredible. We were poised for it. My, we were, my,
1: my. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah he, he was just, you know, he was an artist using sound. And he was truly experimental. But sometimes, of course, he was experimental to the point of being kind of what's the word that English use? Naff? NAF? Oh, I like that almost word. Natural. I'm
1: putting that shit in my vocab. Right, or
0: addled, <laughs> like it was too cutesy, too weird, almost too indulgent, and didn't deliver, right? But, I mean, babies on fire delivered.
1: Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, first of all, it's like I, I've only known... Uh, of the of the the story of Brian Eno, because I never I haven't really dug into Roxy Music yet. So my first real introduction has just been the other albums that he's produced. And then to really finally listen to "Here Come the Warm Jets," I was just completely blown away by it. I'm not saying I connected with everything on that record, but the stuff I connected with, I was like, "Wow!" I mean, this is coming out when that came out. This must have been so ahead of its time. And then to read certainly, the story certainly. about how he's—he doesn't really write the lyrics. He's just doing what I just do with that like jibber jabber singing to, f- and then writes the lyrics from that.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like something called automatic writing. It's it's tapping into your subconscious. And he was using techniques early on. So by 75, he's got these cards called Oblique Strategies. Yes. Which, you know, somebody could say, well, that was a tactic to fight writer's block. But it, it's more important than that. It's Zen. He was He was Mr. Zen. He had moved away from pop music. He had moved away from trying to deliver in that idiom something that was going to make radio charts or radio play. And he was just purely being almost indulgently artistic and embodying uh, zen beauty. See, this this is where he was going. And we could hear that, but he's still making songs on Here Come the Warm Jets, even though they're quite experimental. Sure. And he's still making songs on Taking Tiger Mountain.
1: I think that's kind of what I really gravitated. Like I loved Here Come the Warm Jets, but there was something about this record that I just, like it got deeper inside of me because the instrumentals, and listen, I'm a huge jazz fan. Love jazz, my favorite style of music. I grew up listening to it and I can feel Miles Davis the same way I felt this record there were songs on here that we're going to get to in a moment that I mean, I, at first I just kind of was like, okay, they're playing in the background. And the next thing I know, I'm like, Oh my God, this is just setting a mood. This is, this is creating so much feeling inside of me way more than here come the warm jets.
0: That's interesting. Cause for me, it was the opposite. I, he, you know, I found it challenging and it was, took me a while to warm up to another green world. Really? I like songs. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I do. Yeah, of course. Right? I, love, I love the complexity and and demand and high bar that it takes to write a song. And my hero is Bowie because his music was experimental, but his vocals and his personality created a song where the, 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 the singer and the lyrics were as important as the soundscape, where Brian without a collaborator uh, wasn't a strong singer, and the oh. lyrics, the lyrics <laughs> tended to be like Jim you Jim know in the the shit well, that I do that yeah, too squiggly. indulgent yeah very squiggly do I mean well it was masturbatory and uh, perfect word choice for that yeah <laughs> so it took me a while it's like oh what's going on here you know but I started to get into it and especially I liked the more droney stuff like the big ship I. I loved that. The more it was almost like neo-hippie, you know, acid pot music you immersed yourself in and lost yourself in, right? Yeah. Took you into an alternative world. Because certainly... In the late 70s the world was plenty ugly. <laughs> oh god, I, it's it's like I couldn't my dad always
1: used to say he was like we thought it was all going to fall apart. He was like at any moment. Well, it's the, like now. People, yeah, exactly.
0: Now seems to quote Trump in <sighs> retrospect. 70 late 70s cuz I thought I'd never see anything worse, right? Yeah. We were we were in the Rust Belt. We were in a economically and culturally depressed Akron, Ohio surrounded by anti-intellectual blue-collar mean people, evangelicals, you know, guys that would like to fight in bars. And if you were an artist, your, your future looked bleak. You know, it was boot camp. You had to get the hell out of there. If you could survive Akron, you were going to be great. And so Brian was offering on that level something that we wanted to smoke our admittedly weak pot back then (laughs) low grade (laughs) low grade pot and and lay back and listen to you know another green world all night yeah and that's what started happening
1: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last fifteen years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. And so, what was that like, the experience, when you really started digging in and working with him? I mean, did you see the, the genius that you had already expected you were going to see, or were there. No. I love it. No,
0: uh, what we saw is a guy that, well, actually, what he, I think, secretly wanted to do was, quote, help us because he found our music too brutal and too industrial and on the nose. He wanted to lush it out, soften it up because... That's where he'd gone in life, right? And he pulled out his Oblique Strategies cards oh, in the wow. studio. he saw them? <laughs> oh, he made us try to use them to change things on, on the songs. But you have to understand, we were products of a, of a brutal culture in Akron, Ohio. And these songs we walked into the studio with, some of them were four years old. And we had lived them and played them. And it's like, we can't imagine suddenly doing them pretty. Yeah. That was like an abomination. We were about confrontation. We were about, uh, uh, you know, being uh, pretty much uh, um, transgressive on some level, aesthetically at least. Right? Yeah. We weren't like the punks, where we were anti-intellectual, mean, and nihilistic. But we were plenty angry. But we were angry, but with an informed epistemology, like an informed manifesto. We thought de-evolution was real then. Yeah, and it was a polarizing idea that people thought you guys are sick, you're nuts. We resisted Brian's kind of Zen efforts, and that made him sad more than mad because he was beyond a guy that was going to get angry. He he just thought, oh, they're not, they're they're not there. You know, they they don't have the right consciousness yet. They don't get it. Yeah. All I- right. Well, let's dive into this record. Okay, so because this
1: record has so many instrumentals, yeah. and we can only play a little bit of each of them, yeah. we thought it would be totally Eno-like to use. His oblique strategies cards <laughs> that shape the record to spark the creativity of our discussion there for those songs. There you go. Uh and you had already mentioned that he had you use them. So that was the next question. All right, so let's dive in. The first song is Sky Saw. Yes. And for those that haven't listened to our episode about Here Come the Warm Jets, let me explain. So so Brian Eno would sing along to the record instrumental tracks and make up gibberish sounds which he would then construct into lyrics from words that seemed to work phonetically and rhythmically even if they didn't always have comprehensible meanings so starting a mostly instrumental record off with a song that echoes Eno's continued manifesto about lyrics not really being that important is totally on brand for Brian Eno And the fact that it says it all about meaning nothing at all while being incoherently sung over gibberish (laughs) is almost overkill. So, Peter, play 141. All right, so just just listen to some of those lyrics. All the clouds turn to words. All the words float in sequence. No one knows what they mean. Everyone just ignores them. And then, to make it even better, underneath all of that, there is uh, someone singing Mao Mao starter ching ching Dada."
0: There you go. And
1: just saying, <laughs> like, just complete and utter nonsense. That's I, funny.
0: My wife's cat's name is Mao Mao. That's a good name. What's your dog's name anyway? Beta, because she's not an alpha. Dude, my dog is like a Delta.
1: Dude, (laughs) Lekka, I might, this is, is, first of all, that's great. You never name a dog Frank or Jim. Like, I hate when people give dogs human names, because I don't want to give... You know a, a dog named Eric a tummy tickle. I want to give something <laughs> named like Mister Flufflesworth or some shit like that. My dog Lekka, her full name, and you'll probably appreciate this because I bet you knew these guys. Wait,
0: is it, it Lekka or Leika? It's Lecca, L E
1: K K A. But the full name is Mecca Lecca High, Mecca oh, yeah, Heineho, sure, sure from Pee Wee's Playhouse sure. from Jumbie, and that's uh, and my dog is a complete nutter. Uh, she's a she's a Zeta
0: mm-hmm.
1: probably. <laughs> so so jumping into the next song, yeah. You have Overfire Island. Peter, play 105. I was waiting for Miles Davis to jump in (laughs) with a trumpet solo. That
0: sounded like some of Miles' later work. Instead, you might see some movie credits.
1: Yes! Oh! Oh! A hundred percent that this could be, uh, this could be the soundtrack to like a seventies like black exploitation movie, like something off a Shaft. Like you won't buy a
0: timepiece, brother. But it would have oh, to be goodbye. weirder than that, like the Mac. Yes. Oh, a hundred
1: percent. Shaft's pretty weird too. Yeah. Uh, Cool song. This is obviously the first real instrumental on the record. Uh, And when we pulled the oblique strategies card, we came up with remove ambiguities and convert to specifics.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you, that's what Devo did. (laughs) Well, no. And speaking
1: of that, what specifically made you choose a career in music?
0: Yeah. Well, it'd be a lie to say I chose that career because I think like so many things in life, you are compelled by some genetic imperative to follow something that's probably in your brain from the time you're a child. And most people successfully bury it because they become socialized and do what they're supposed to do. But that kind of, uh, of, of, you know, whatever you want to call it, like
1: programming
0: or, yeah, 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 behavioralist, uh, it didn't work on me. I never quit thinking what I thought, and I never gave in to authority, and I never didn't believe that what I was thinking was wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, I just found myself, whether it was drawing or, you know, Picking up an instrument or writing down lyrics, that this is what I wanted to do. And I think that being blue collar in Ohio, it was an easier path and less expensive path to use music as your medium than it was to try to become Andy Warhol or Richard Meyer, a famous architect. You know, it just wasn't going to happen for me, not from where I was starting from. So you, you start from where you can and use what you have. And what didn't cost much money to have a third-rate little instrument get together with friends. And didn't cost much money to be creative. And that's, and that's what happened. And I loved it. I loved the performance angle. So I think there's that. How quickly, how quickly when you started jamming did you realize,
1: you're like, oh, shit, we have something?
0: Oh, that took a while.
1: Um, <laughs> you're like, dude, we were garbage up top. Well, the problem—the
0: problem was Mark and I were visual artists, but a, a lot of times with music, you—you're a sponge. You, the first thing you do is you learn genres, or you—you you find yourself doing something that you know your peers are doing, or it's something that you hear in your world that you're familiar with. You imitate, right? Imitations number one. Yeah. So. I was completely, you know, a, a blues freak because that that's in Ohio, northeastern Ohio and Detroit. Yeah. That's what was happening. So I knew the blues. I knew the history of the blues. I played in a blues band. And I didn't realize that what I was doing was just historical imitation of black people. So I was ripping them off and didn't realize it. Uh, you know, because I... I respected it. I, well, it's just that's the music that you love, and
1: it's also blues. Is unless you know, unless you don't know how to solo, blues is you know, it's
0: it's like you said, it's very simple chords, right. something you can jam on, and it's it's all about feeling, and it's all about hundred percent, feeling. you know, passion and and uh, basic primal energy. Mark was the opposite. He grew up like upper middle class, and you know, his parents gave him piano lessons, and and then he had he was given a like a you know, uh, um, an electric piano, and then a then an early ARP synthesizer, and you know, um, and some other electronica. And he all he cared about was like prog rock. Yeah. So he was he was just trying to practice like how many notes can I play fast, and how many time changes can we make, which was just almost math music, and. I thought that was pretty wanky. He thought the blues were really dumb. And so as we became friends over our art, we agreed that what we were doing was stupid in music because we weren't applying being artists to the music. We were segregating. So we said, okay, let's let's experiment. Let's get together And if anything sounds like blues or prog rock or any other genre, for that matter of fact, you know, if it sounds like spandex platform cock rock, it's out, right? And so we started doing that. And of course, I was inculcating him with the whole de-evolution philosophy. And we started applying (laughs) all those ideas that were literary and art to music. Like, what would devo music sound like? What's devolved to music? And we thought we had found it in brutalism, in minimalism. And so that's when you hear those early basement tapes, that's what's going on. And by album number one, it's congealed into a conscious aesthetic. And there's plenty of song structure in those songs. But they're aggressive and they were polarizing and a lot of people hated what they were hearing. Wow, that's
1: insane.
0: Well, I love it, though, but
1: I can see it all. Everything you just said just makes perfect sense from all the stuff that I've, that I've heard so far from Devo. All right, uh, let's jump into St. Elmo's Fire. Okay. So this is the story of a summertime traveling adventure with a friend or lover. Eno asked guitarist Robert Fripp to play fast and unpredictably to sound like the electrical charge between the two poles of a Wimshurst Static generator, which is one of those crackling electricity right, machines that you hear yeah. in like Dr. Frankenstein's lab. Tesla. Yeah, very much. All right, uh here let's play Peter, play the solo at one thirty. <laughs> Just so everybody knows that this song has nothing to do with, with Emilio, the with, the, with Emilio mm-hmm. Estevez and Rob Lowe. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, I was praying for the Rob Lowe sax solo. Do you remember the part where he's like, "Let's
0: rock"? It has a lot to do with Rob Lowe, though. Rob Lowe, R A W blow. R-A-W blow. Rob Blow. Oh, Raw Blow? Um, yeah. fuck yeah, it does. <laughs> um, that's what it sounds like to me.
1: <laughs> First of all, this is this is where I feel like the record's really started to pick up. Uh, for people that don't know, St. Elmo's Fire is a plasma weather phenomenon, like a natural neon light where the air molecules around a tall pointed object ionizes the electrical field and produces a glow and buzzing sound. <laughs> uh, but because I associated this title with uh, St. Elmo's Fire, the movie... <laughs> Uh, that was filled with questionable fashion and haircuts, and it just was like such a me- It was so 80s, that movie. Um, so let me ask you this. How did you guys come up with your looks, and were any of the
0: other members in the band resistant? Luckily, we were two sets of brothers, and Alan Myers, the drummer, who really just thought, from his perspective, as a serious jazz drummer and a practitioner of Tai Chi, He just thought we were out to lunch and almost find Smirky thought it was all funny. So he just went with it. It's like, okay, you guys want to do that? All right. Boy, you guys are ridiculous. (laughs) So with two sets of brothers is a shorthand because you grow up, right? Yeah, of course. And you You, know each other. You know each
1: other, you know how to argue with each other. And you you understand.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise Mark and I could have never found guys that took themselves seriously to play those parts. Like, here, you're going to do this on guitar. <laughs> like, no self-respecting guitarist who thought he was going to be, you know, the next Jimmy Page would have touched it, right? Yeah. But with two sets of brothers, they were all on the same page. So there was no resistance. And they totally got it when I go, look, I found these yellow suits in a uh, an industrial uh, maintenance catalog, and they're used... For spraying dangerous chemicals to protect the person who's spraying, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna wear these, uh, and they just laughed and it was like, well, we're gonna wear them because they cost three dollars and sixty two cents <laughs> a piece. Yeah. And when you tried to wear real cool clothes on stage, you'd ruin you look, them. Yeah, you you'd ruin, ruin them, them.
1: And there's there's hundreds of dollars, dude. It's it's the most genius cool shit. In the fucking world. And of course there were bigger yeah. ideas
0: behind it because it was like what we were really after is something that was totally antithetical to everything that we were being like subjected to constantly from all these cock rock stadium bands with the spandex and the long hair and the big platforms. Look at me, look at me. I'm special. I'm cool. Yeah. Look at my cock. <laughs> you know, we said, no, we're going to present, you know, almost like this unified militaristic drill team and so what's going to be sexy about devo if anything is the precision it's more like white james brown in the flames oh i love that and we all love james brown because of the precision you know that stuff was just devastatingly strong i mean just it just bowled you over and you know I was a veteran of going to uh, novelty shops and secondhand clothing stores and all those things you do when you're artsy and blue-collar. And I remember seeing these cinch belts in a uh, Salvation Army, women's cinch belts. Were, they would wore these uh, dresses in the 50s uh, shifts, but they had elastic cinch belts that clasped in the in the front – To give them a waist. Yeah. To give a definition. And I thought, that's it. I'll have, I'll have, you know, elastic cinch belts made and we'll tuck the shirts in. And we were all skinny. Sure. And we'll just put those on and suddenly it looks like fashion. And I'll put the Devo really big up here like a corporate logo. Yeah. So we were making fun of corporations. We were making fun of commercials. But we were using that vocabulary of mainstream society and we were using industrial aesthetic and that harkened back to the dadaists and the russian constructivists they did that stuff in the 20s but of course nobody but you know <laughs> little intellectual shitheads <laughs> yeah, like say, myself yeah, would yeah, no, yeah. know we, people we, had no idea it was like <laughs> maybe was like a
1: couple of people like are they going quasi bolshevik yeah, they go. In here? Yeah,
0: somebody at a radio station goes. So, where'd you get the idea for the suits? And I go, well, you know, the Bauhaus. And they just, <laughs> they suddenly get a terrible all right. look. We're gonna, exactly. we're
1: giving, we're giving away Zeppelin tickets. And playing that? at the That's exactly. That's exactly. All right, have. that was a great interview, guys. We'll uh, just go ahead and uh, sign the wall and get out of here. That <laughs> is what happens.
0: One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week, so pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.
1: The number you have reached is 100.7 WMNS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Like this yeah! The
0: The Rise and
1: Fall of One of the Most Iconic Radio Stations in America Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, PROH Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. All right, let's dive into the next song in Dark Trees. Peter, play a minute in. (laughs) This sounds like the score to the movie Heat. Like that was. I loved Heat. Great film, but it creates a mood. This dude, dude, Eno one million percent could have gone the Danny Elfman way. He could and and done and scored films Mm -hmm. and made I mean, I know I don't know why I'm about to say this, because it made
0: millions. And I'm sure he
1: already did. (laughs) Well, I'm
0: sure I know why he didn't too. Why do you think? Because when you when you work in the, um, in, in the service of an industry like Hollywood film, you're, you're, you're a hired hand, you're a cog. I know, they, sure, they let you make lots of money, but constantly, you know, you're told what to do by three or four producers. Then the director wants something else. Then there's these meetings. It's like when I directed a lot of uh, TV commercials. The, the politics... And the infighting and the, and the pettiness was was brutal. It was just, it, it was stultifying, right? At the end, anything, any excitement or creative kind of satisfaction is ground right out of the process. So, I mean, oftentimes what happens in the movies is like, even, even with big people that do a lot of scoring, they like, could you make it sound like Danny Elfman's and then they'll name a movie?
1: Yeah, and also don't know if uh, an orchestra can take uh, their conductor seriously if he's wearing a a purple (laughs) kimono. He wouldn't. And he's he's burning some Nag Champa. All right, let's dive into the next song uh, The Big Ship.
0: My Uh, favorite.
1: All right, uh, Peter, play the ending when it takes off at 153. (laughs) At this point of the album, it's like I've just already decided that all of the music is 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 touching something in me. I'm I'm being inspired to write something to this. Like I constantly want to hear. The, sometimes the music is so powerful and beautiful. I'm like, God, if he only would have sang some fucking lyrics over this shit.
0: Well, you know what? That heroes took care of that. Sure, sure. You know. That's what that's what Brian did with David on that. And you hear it here. I mean, this is Brian being brilliant, especially his use of uh, synths here is fantastic. Oh, uh, it's it's it's
1: just it's just taking me away. Um let's go it's into the, spiritual. Very, very spiritual. Very spiritual. Um, I want to get to the next song because this next one stuck out immediately. Uh probably the poppiest song on the record. Mm-hmm. I'll Come Running. Yeah. Peter, play two thirty three. I'll come running. I mean, to me, this sounds like an avant-garde song by the Drifters. (laughs) <laughs> this has that that feel to it. An
0: awfully white drifter, very very white, super <laughs> duper white.
1: Also, I think this is probably the most romantic song on the record. I mean, just mm-hmm. reading some of the lyrics, I got. I want to be the wandering sailor. We're silhouettes by the light of the moon. I sit playing solitaire by the window, just waiting seasons change. I don't know that that's lovely to me. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts on this? What do you think? Because this is now we this is the poppiest song on the record. So what what do you think about this song?
0: Uh, you know, it, it it's only the singing style and the buried mix of the vocals that prevents me from liking it even more. I, I wish that it was allowed to be more yeah. mixed, like a oh, pop 100%. song with a real
1: vocal. A hundred percent. Let me ask you a question: Do you think is twenty twenty romantic? Do you think with the year that we live? No. <laughs> Well, I mean, when I think when I think when we wrote this, the world wasn't
0: falling. Twenty twenty is the land of plenty of shit. Yeah, I mean, how would you rewrite this song now? Then, my God, (laughs) I'll keep running.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep running to my safe room. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Going on to. Another Green World. This the title. Is the, the title of the album, uh, Peter, play 53 seconds in.
0: What this kind of music does is, is uh, it frees you up from thinking about your penis. <laughs>
1: nah, we're always thinking about it. though.
0: Well, you know, sometimes just just like a few, be,
1: yeah. Just you get a few little squid dittles out of the head, yeah, and then you're so like, all right. Well, I gotta sometimes do work you got to escape that in. realm,
0: you know. Uh, well,
1: that's funny that you said that because this title was inspired by a science fiction story Eno read about space explorers who went to another. Habitable planet.
0: You see, to find I didn't the exact even know that match know
1: that. of Earth, at, and all I wrote was, "Please, dear God, be true." <laughs> uh, Eno felt like it was an ironic and inescapable parallel loop to how he was always looking for another tangent, but ended up back at the same place. Yeah, that's what happens. You're always back at square one. Well, we pulled the uh, the OS cards, and we came up with faced with a choice. Do both. (laughs) So that leads us to this question. That's a three way. It is a three way. (laughs) What's another job or career you'd be happiest doing? Wow. Wow. Architect. I could see you doing that. What makes you think you can do it though? First off the jump.
0: Had I started off at a different spot in the order of things as a child, I would have been an architect.
1: But shit ch- changes, and you know you.
0: Yeah, you, but I had I all I could afford was an acoustic guitar. Yeah, <laughs> and I only went to college because I got a scholarship. Really?
1: Yeah. Where, did did you apply to multiple schools? But that was yeah. the one that. Where did where, where did you apply to?
0: Oh, just just midwestern ones like the University at Ann Arbor and yeah, a couple others, and and I got into Kent State because I had met some professors there that that um, because I lived in the town of Kent who believed in me and who shepherded me through. And then when I was a graduate student, I got accepted into the University of Ann Arbor, but then I was kicked out because I had been a member of SDS, and after the killings at Kent State, they got rid of all out-of-state students who had been members of politically active groups because they said they were outside agitators. So wait, you, you were there. I was in the middle of it. You were in the
1: middle of that. Do you feel, you know, you you would if that doesn't happen, you get to this place right now. Like no. how 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 much did that change the trajectory? of It's a of fork your life? in the
0: road. Totally, it's a fork in the road to see what real live M1 rifle ammunition does to human bodies, and to know intimately two of the four people killed and. One's 20 yards from you and one's like 20 feet from you. Oh my God. Yeah, it's... And you're okay. You you got missed. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I, I listen, I, in the same situation, I can completely empathize. I lost my best friend in a drunk driving car accident. I, ran, I was driving, My some guy runs a red light, hits my car, kills my friend. I almost die. And, and you're here. Like, and I'm here. And it's, I don't know if I'm making this podcast. Well, actually, no, I, I know I'm not making this podcast if Angelo doesn't die, because it it's like... Everything's different. Everything's different. He he loved music so much and would make fun of me that I didn't know. He's like, mm-hmm. how do you not know ELO? And I'm like, well, I know a couple songs, <laughs> but I don't know the records. And it's just, this is my way of kind of of, of sharing Angelo's yeah. name. And so it was a life-changing trauma. Completely life-changing trauma. And, you know, especially now in, in this day, day and age I feel like it's like right away it didn't it didn't change anything because I was so depressed I was I was a I was a drug addict because I couldn't handle it Mm -hmm. because I lost my best friend and Mm -hmm. wanted Mm -hmm. to still do stand-up comedy and and now it's like all the 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 lessons which is like to live every moment as as it could possibly be your last absolutely and just that's true which is a hundred percent true and I I don't like knowing what you had experienced I, I could see why it's you know yeah, there's Why a that, sense of urgency, yeah.
0: sense of urgency that you, you get serious and people look silly to you once you've been through something like that. And so I understood my father maybe for the first time because, I mean, he, you know, he was sent at 18 on the fourth day of, of uh, the landing uh, at, at um, the the famous, you know, Beach landing at France for World War Two, when they dumped everybody onto the beach, and then he fought his way through France and Germany, and got wounded. And you can you imagine? You're 18. Uh, this cu- is no, what I, you do, right? I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, even just
1: watching it in movies, it, it just it just makes it gives me a panic attack because I'm like the idea. That Band of Brothers. Yeah. I, or or Saving Private Ryan. The opening scene yeah. of Saving Private Ryan is just yeah. the. The, the idea that they're like, yeah, this is probably going to be it, but we got to do it because that's our job. And
0: that's what happened to my father, you know, landing at Normandy. But luckily, uh, not the first or second day because probably would have died. Yeah. Oh, man. But but I mean, after that experience and then you watch what concerns most people and what they base their decisions on and the, the pettiness and the infighting and the corrupt politicians. And it's like, my God, this is pathetic.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. All right, let's get to a lighter moment. (laughs) Sombre Reptiles. Uh, Peter, play the intro.
0: (laughs) So, uh, thoughts on this song? Oh, my God. I don't remember having any thoughts on this. I think I skipped it. I, I did like the drum machine it definitely has
1: a, some skippable qualities yeah all right let's move on to where it really starts picking up again little fishes Peter play 38 seconds
0: maybe it wasn't picking up uh, well, maybe
1: I, got song I think
0: that's what you hear when you you die at sea and you meet King Neptune
1: It definitely. I I think that's those little noises that are just running through, which to me sounds like somebody's got like a saw and they're just like tapping it. Like it's definitely underwater. Definitely underwater. All right, let's keep moving on. Let's get to some of the good shit. All right, golden hours. Uh, so with its liner notes credited choppy organs spasmodic percussion and uncertain piano its Mediterranean sounding guitar and emotionless vocals this remarks on the slow passing of time Peter play a little catoodle several
0: times I've seen the evening slide away watching the signs
1: i love this song i i this is this is one of those songs it, dude it's it's just you if he sings on more of this album it's just i think it's a far higher up on the 500 greatest albums list
0: again you could re-record this with some heft and put the you know strip all those effects off the vocals and stick them up front, and you've got a great song. Oh my
1: God! Slow passage of time. Skibadabadoo, be do
0: Oh my God! This sounds like Tom Jones. <laughs> really? But Tom Jones, you know, he's got cool. Oh my God! All right, let's move on.
1: We got a couple songs left, and we're gonna do some facts. So the next song is Becomed Peter, play one eleven. This is really funny to to hear something I think this beautiful on this record and not saying there's not there's there's other stuff that isn't as beautiful on this record but it just proves that even a self-described non-musician with mm-hmm. all this cutting-edge technology can make something sound so organically mm-hmm.
0: and achingly mm-hmm. beautiful you know Yeah I mean once again it, you could take um, a dose of saltpeter and an ambient and <laughs> If you were, if you were on a, uh, a lay down flat business class seat on Delta One going to Italy uh, without COVID nineteen, uh, this would be a fantastic song to have headphones oh, on.
1: I, I feel like part of this record uh, you can meditate to, absolutely, and, and it will not like affect you know your Zen moment, whatever astral plane you're. That's going to
0: de stress you. Oh, a hundred percent. What's up, everyone? This is Jay
1: Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artist from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. I I actually, I I do have like a meditation playlist and uh, it's funny that since you said that now, it's like, no, I guess I can actually put this on uh, when I'm on an airplane. All right. That then takes us to, this was a hard one for me to say, Zawinol slash Lava. Yeah. Uh, Peter, play 146.
0: Just a continuation of the last song. Well, sure. He's well on his way to pure ambient music.
1: Yeah. this is You can definitely feel it here.
0: This is a tribute to
1: Joe Zawinul, the Austrian jazz pianist who helped create Jazz Fusion uh-huh. and who co-founded one of the greatest Jazz Fusion bands, Weather Report. Sure. Uh, we pulled the OS cards, and it came up with Think of the Radio. So let me ask you this. when <laughs> When did you first realize that you were
0: popular? Hmm. Um, I suppose when David Bowie decided to come to Max's Kansas City and announce us on stage and say that this was his next big project in December of 1977, and the crowd went bananas, and we hadn't had anything except a self-produced single oh, wow. out on Boogie Boy Records. Oh, wow. I
1: could imagine. And did, did your did the whole career just change after that moment?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did. And then what, what really sealed the deal was the night we went on Saturday Night Live on October eighteenth, nineteen 1978. Because even after all that and putting out the first record, with Brian Eno and being on Warner Brothers as a label, we were playing clubs. You know, we were still this, quote, new wave punk act that we got lumped into. But uh, we go on Saturday Night Live, and we had to stop the tour two days later because we had to rebook everything.
1: To bigger venues.
0: To bigger venues. Oh, my God. Because 15 million people saw that. That's when Saturday Night Live was really big. There were only three networks. Everybody was watching that. The whole world was tuned into it if you were 30 or under. And, you know, what people don't realize is how stressful and how compact that experience is. Because you go there three days in advance. You work with the cast. You play in your slot. As they work out their sketches, you keep practicing going on live for three days in a row and you're there all day and you hang out with them at night. And then by the time you go on, you know, the drill, you, you know, there's so many rules, so many, so, so much preparation. And because it's live and, uh, Lauren Michaels comes over in the dark, you know, cause there's a 32nd commercial going on. So you the stage goes dark and he goes, all right, guys. And some, Assistant Turns on a flashlight And lights up his face So we're in the dark We see Lauren Michaels face Like a horror movie From underneath lit And he goes When this commercial's over You're gonna hear Don Pardo's voice When you hear him say Devo I don't care what you think's going on Or what's wrong on this stage Or if the lights don't come on right Just start playing Because 15 million people are gonna see this So don't fucking blow it And then the light goes off. (laughs) No pressure.
1: No pressure. That's what I mean.
0: (laughs) Now you're literally almost shitting your pants, literally. And And you see that red light come on. And that's it. Uh, Don Pardo. And ladies and gentlemen. Right. And boom. I'll give it up for
1: Devo. Kind of like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Devo.
0: Right. So obviously we played that song faster than we ever had played it. Yeah, the, the adrenaline alone. And and yet we were tight and made no mistakes. People thought there was some video trick because they didn't think what they were seeing was real 30 frames per second. Really? Oh, yeah. They go, how'd you guys do that? <laughs> like, I mean, how'd you get Saturday Night Live to to agree to do that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what did you guys do immediately after that besides go to the party? I mean, was it just it's like, how do you feel knowing that you Well, just the party's before, right
0: there in the office for sure. Man, but I mean,
1: it. but I mean like that first moment when the band gets together, you're, you're, you've left Saturday night live and you know, your career has changed. I mean,
0: I don't think we knew that that night. We just were, we felt so relieved and, and, and so triumphant that we didn't blow it. Right. Yeah. And we were getting pats on the back from, you know, John Belushi. Oh my God. And Lorraine Newman. And, and, and uh, Dan Aykroyd and uh and believe it or not Bill Murray really loved it and you guys were great you know how could he not how could he not and I had uh I had you know this is this is how (laughs) blue collar I still was I had bought a a gram of coke my first gram of coke that I ever bought fuck yeah you did from Elliot Roberts limo driver Elliot Roberts was our manager and he goes, you guys might want some Coke after this show. And if so, buy it from my limo driver because it won't be shit. So I buy this gram and I think, if we don't blow it, I'm going to do some blow, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, And if we do blow it, I'm going to do some blow. And these offices are decrepit and there's old wooden desks. And there's just like bottles of cheap booze, like plastic gallons of Smirnoff and pizzas that have been delivered and... So I have a piece of pizza and a you know, vodka and soda, and I'm in this side office, and Bill Murray comes in. I go, oh, hi, Bill, how you doing? Good, and he goes, I don't I want to get out of the noise. I just want to sit down. Elliot Roberts comes in. So the three of us are there. The big party's going on in the back offices, and I, I pull out my vial, and I go, hey, Bill, do you want some Coke? And he goes, nah, I don't touch that stuff. And I, I lay out two lines, and I get my little dollar bill and roll it up. And I go, Elliot, do you want some first? He goes, I got my own. <laughs> so I'm about to snort these two lines, and the vial's sitting there with the cap off, and the two lines on the desk. John Belushi comes in in his Blues Brothers outfit. And he goes, Jerry, Jerry Adivo. And he starts doing Curly from The Three Stooges. He goes, you guys were fucking great. (laughs) And I go, oh, John, would you like some Coke? He goes, don't mind if I do. (laughs) And he grabs the vial, reaches in the inside coat pocket of his Blues Brothers jacket, pulls out a glass straw, sticks it in the vial, looks at me while my mouth's still open like a dumb shit from... Ohio and he snorts it all I know he does he snorts it all and he puts it down <laughs> oh my god and I and he sees my face and goes, <laughs> oh what you want some money or something yeah what and he, he reaches into the other pocket and he's got this wad of hundred dollar bills in a red rubber band which was you know that's the way you lived large in New York City sure. all cash and he's John Belushi and I don't get any of this yet and he he peels off two, and he lays it down and I go no, John, I don't want your money. You know, yeah. trying to be cool. He goes, all right, then, And then he takes it. Oh, take, are you f- <laughs> Takes the money and he puts it in. And he goes, I'll see you later. And he leaves the office.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that is great. Oh, that, that is so great. All right. The next two songs you have, uh, where are we at? uh everything merges with the night yeah it's beautiful song and the album closes with spirits drifting both great songs but I want to get to some facts do you want to do some facts facts I'm going to sing it as as you though here's some facts we're gonna (laughs) give you facts facts and then a facts and a fact (laughs) all right according to Eno he was honored to find out that this was one of the most influential albums for the artist prince wow yeah it's uh, which i could say prince seems like he would dig this kind of shit when and how did you first find out that you had fans like neil young david bowie and iggy pop
0: well you know that all happened within nine months Uh, iggy pop first So how does that happen? Is there somebody's like, hey man, uh, you know
1: Iggy Pop's digging your shit? Or is it like, is it like you have to meet Iggy? And then somebody like
0: Scoodle Dans him over to you? Well, here's what really happened is uh, uh, Bob Mothersbaugh and I uh, went to Cleveland, Ohio to see Iggy Pop on the Idiots Tour with David Bowie playing keyboards in March of 77. And we see him and a couple friends of ours got us backstage cause they knew Jimmy Destry from Blondie. Mm-hmm. So we're backstage. We get to meet Iggy briefly and you know, he doesn't know who in the hell we are, but we tell him what we're doing and we leave him a cassette tape and a little piece of paper. And we think they're just going to throw it away. He, he throws it in this basket with a bunch of other tapes cause people give him shit all the time. Right. And people are giving stuff to David Bowie and, They're traveling together. Well, months later, we come to L.A. to play in the clubs because Kip Cohen of A&M Records brings us out here to showcase and, you know, summarily dumps us after the first gig Says he's not interested. But the people have gone so nuts that David Knight of the Starwood offers us a second gig. So on the second gig, Tony Basil shows up, with Dean Stockwell and Iggy Pop. Because Iggy never forgot us. Because apparently Iggy... Of course he's
1: hanging with Dean Stockwell. Jesus. And... and
0: <laughs> the coolest. Well, and... and Who wasn't there that night was, was Dennis Hopper, but they were all... Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, all homies. All yeah. homies. And so he had never forgotten. He had listened to that tape. And he had given it to David Bowie. Because David said, hey, if you ever hear anything you like, give it to me. So he... He tells us this backstage. He invites us to his place in Malibu where he's mixing uh, um, Lust for Life. And so we hang out with, with Iggy on the weekend in Malibu at his rented house. And because of Tony Basil and Dean Stockwell, they get the tape to Neil Young up in San Francisco. Oh, my God. So Neil Young decides he wants us in his movie and so we get to meet Neil Young and that's how I meet Elliot Roberts who's managing Neil Young and Elliot wants to manage us and after all these horrible you know nefarious characters came for the last six months trying to like take a huge piece of your publishing and wanting 20% and a five-year contract Elliot said we don't even sign anything you can shake hands If I don't want you, I give you 30 days notice. If you don't want me, give me 30 days notice. I want 15%, none of your publishing. I went, you got a deal. (laughs) You know, he goes, what do you want? And I said, we want on Saturday Night Live. He goes, come into my office Monday, done.
1: He's like, bring some Coke, Belushi's going to be there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so then Iggy introduces us to Stan Diamond, this lawyer for uh, Bule Brothers which was David Bowie's production company signed to Warner Brothers for a distribution deal and he puts us in touch with David and then that whole negotiation starts where we meet David in New York and he announces us on stage says he's going to produce but then that didn't happen because he's all over the map with a million projects Sure. and he says you know what if you don't want to wait here talk to Brian Eno and that's what happened right after Oh, that's great! So, all these people just came in, like within you know six months.
1: It, it just it was just like the the floodgates opened, and it was just yeah. well, you make art like that, you know, you're yeah. gonna stick out, and people are gonna yeah are gonna want to be a part of it. It was exciting. Oh, it's I like can, what I can we am- had
0: worked for, what what we lived for. Oh, I could
1: imagine. I, I mean, you were probably just glowing. All right. Drummer Phil Collins was so frustrated by the oblique strategies (laughs) that he would sometimes fling beer cans across the room after the resulting (laughs) musical experiment sucked. Let me ask you this. What were Devo band squabbles like?
0: You know, we didn't have any back then. Uh, Those squabbles only happened later when the collaboration started to, quote, devolve into, you know... The typical things that happen when there's money and ego, right? But we we had some of those reactions to Brian's uh, cards, too. We You know, we found him a bit silly, and we would snicker behind his back at some of the ridiculous stuff. I mean, so he's
1: pulling out, like, cards, like they're tarot cards, and he's fucking, like...
0: He's asking us to draw from the deck and read them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was happening for real. He took it seriously. And, look, we were college-educated intellectual people, Sure, but we were results-oriented, maybe more like Phil Collins. We had a certain kind of balance between our blue-collar uh, life experience and book learning, right? Yeah. And we found this indulgent and a little bit wanky. And so, because what really mattered is, what does it sound like? What do we really have in front of us? You... you I mean, ideas are great, and experimenting is great. But at a certain point, I guess we were blue-collar enough and middle-class enough, we thought there's got to be a payoff here. In other words, you have to fashion something out of these ideas and out of this experiment that communicates to somebody besides you and your friends. And and that's the pressure we put on ourselves. Sure. All
1: right. Uh, First of all, Jerry, this has been fantastic. I mean this on so many levels. Uh, So we pulled one last oblique strategies card, and it's just, is it finished? So my question is, (laughs) when will de-evolution be complete?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess that's when uh, the earth rids itself of the blight of the human species and becomes beautiful again. And then it starts all over.
1: Yeah. So what is that? Like two weeks? <laughs> two, three weeks? <laughs> well, it's weeks? looking like it now, isn't it? <laughs> Could be. And hopefully, because we're all going to be fine, uh, you know. Well, not all of us. Not all of us. Hope it's just the dickheads. Just the, get the
0: dickheads. I would like with, a genetically engineered disease that just took care of the shithead. <laughs> the shitheads. But you know
1: who isn't a shithead? Who? You oh, and the, me. And I, I mean this. This was fantastic. Yeah. And Thank I appreciate you. you, buddy. Thank you so much. All right. What did I tell you guys? I sacrificed my health so me and Gerald could do this podcast. Follow Gerald on Twitter at gvc 3 Kasali, C-A-S-L-A-E, and he gave me something to read. With the world in full panic over COVID-19, thanks, Gerald, for riling us up, and Devo Activity on Ice, I am devoting even more of my time to my fledging winemaking career now in its sixth year. To get the full picture on what I'm doing, including a description of the wines I'm offering with my brand, the 50 by 50, please go to www.the50by50.com. Like I said, that's all spelled out. When I'm not tasting, I'm staying put, social distancing, and putting the finishing touches on the Devo musical I have been developing for some time. Holy shit, I didn't even finish reading that. It's dope. So go to the50by50.com, guys. Stock up on his wine. Come on, man. Let's get fucking drunk. It's, we're like five years away from the road warrior. Please subscribe on Spotify to The 500 now. We just listened to Brian Eno from 1975. This week, music director Matt Pinfield chose Stephen Dreams. Stephen Dreams are a new trio from Nashville and LA, and they are all multi-instrumentalists inspired by artists like Brian Eno, who make up interesting and innovative textures and soundscapes. Listen to their brand new single, Election Day, now on Spotify. And check out their link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artists that influenced you in the subject line next week. Is the police week with their 1978 album Outlandos Day of Moray, which we all need in our lives? You've got homework to do. You've got all the time in the world to do it. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Dougal, Dougal, my true dukes.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Revenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to